You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, The last time we were in Genesis, um, we were in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abram. And as we start this morning, I kind of want us to go back and revisit that covenant to launch us into where we're headed today. So if you join me in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. In other words, I want you to leave your home, your father, uh, all your relatives, everything that you're familiar and comfortable with, and go. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. And we know Abram goes, he's headed toward this place called the Negev. He goes through Canaan, he goes through Bethel. And in the midst of all of this, Abram sets up an altar and worships the Lord. So things are great until famine hits. Well, they're out of food. And so all of a sudden in this moment or this situation of uncertainty, what happens is Abram stops trusting God's provision. He stops believing that God can provide. And as a result, he also begins doubting God's protection. And so because of this, he runs to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. And as he goes to Egypt, uh, there's certain things happening there that he coerces his family into telling this really, really great lie. And really the lie he makes up is to protect himself. As a result of this though, um, Abraham, Abram uh, winds up being rebuked by God. He winds up bringing judgment onto Pharaoh's house and he's ultimately kicked out of Egypt. I don't know if you've ever been kicked out of anywhere Um, maybe you've been dismissed from class, shouldn't happen, you know, um, but kicked out of a country. This is a big deal. Pharaoh says, take him, his wife and everything of his and get him out of here. Now, the great part about this is, is all of this leads Abram to a place of repentance. Look at Genesis 13 verse one. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him back into the Negev. So Abram goes back to where the Lord had led him in the first place. And now things are very different. And this is where we begin this morning in verse two, look at how things are different. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Abram is loaded, folks, He is wealthy. It's coming out his ears. Verse three, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So again, Abram goes back to where the Lord had led him to begin with. Abram is someone 
that when we read the scriptures, we have to, to a certain degree, know this is someone that we should follow their example. So when we see what happens with Abram here, it can raise the question, does this mean that in times of repentance, I I should physically, tangibly, literally go back to where I was in the first place, go back to where I was before the sin, go back to where I was before I diverted away from where God wanted me to go. Well, I think that depends. Uh, On the one hand, if God leads you to a place, if God has called you, I want you to sell your stuff here. I want you and your wife and your family. I want you to go to this place. Or maybe God calls you to a people God gives you a brokenness for a certain group of people. If God ever calls you to a place and a people and you run, you should probably go back. Or maybe God's called you to a place or to a people and you've never gone in the first place. I'd encourage you, pack your stuff. Go where the Lord is leading. All that said, I don't know that most of the time it's so much a place where God has called us or a people that God has called us to, but the actual calling itself that we somehow run from, we get distracted from. This happened to me in my life. God had very clearly called me into full-time vocational ministry. And somewhere along that path, I got this idea, but I would really like to be a rock star. And it it took a while and God eventually showed me, you know, you're not really good at that. And I've called you to do this. And I returned, all right? Abram returns to where the Lord had led him in the first place. Look at verse five. And Lot who went with him also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Their possessions were so great that they couldn't all fit there where they were. And this caused strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Also at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So remember, Abram fled to Egypt. Why? Because there was a famine and he began doubting God's provision. Well, now we look at Abram and Lot both and you ask yourself, has God provided for Abram? Big time, probably way, way beyond what Abram ever even thought. In fact, God's provision was so great for Abram, for Lot, that they were now in danger of it creating division between them. The provision was so great, they were now in danger of it causing division. Through this, you and I need to understand, if we don't humbly steward Uh, God's provision to us, then it can very easily lead to prideful division between us. If you and I don't understand and hold and steward what God has placed in our care, if we don't do that humbly, um, those things that God has given us in order to bless us and bless others through us, those very things can create division between us. And that shouldn't happen within the body of Christ. But why does that happen? Here's why. It's because you and I, we are either, every moment of every day, we are either becoming more selfless and more generous, or we are becoming more self-centered and greedy. 
one or the other. You can't like pitch your tent right there in the middle and just go, I'm kind of happy with the balance. No, we're either becoming more selfless, more generous, or we're becoming the opposite. Look at their herdsmen. Great example of this. They're fighting over land, cattle, water, who knows what else. But now here's another significant point that we're told. It's not just some passing thing that he happens to mention that at this same time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Who cares, right? Well, here's why we care. The Canaanites and the Perizzites did not know God. They did not acknowledge God. They did not follow God. And they're sitting there with a front row seat watching all of this happen. You see, when the people of God are divided, the lost world is always attentive. When God's people start going at it with one another rather than loving one another, the people who are not God's people take a step back and watch and go, well, what's so different about them? There are always eyes watching. Now, the good part about this story is that Abram figures out what's happening. Abram is attentive to what's going on. Look at verse eight. So Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between our herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Abram says, we're family for crying out loud. This kind of stuff can't happen between us. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. What's going on here? Abram is more concerned with his relationship with Lot and how he is reflecting God than he is with his own rights to to choose, to get to be first, to be the one to rightfully say, hey, this is mine. Abram is putting his relationship with Lot and the reflection that he is of God, he's putting those things before his right to say, this is mine. Now, we talk a lot here about this misleading fantasy in our day and time of entitlement, that we're all just entitled to certain things, and we're not. We try and seriously dispel that. But let's acknowledge for a moment, if anybody in human history maybe had a right to feel a little bit entitled, it's Abram. Now, why do I say that? Well, who had God made a covenant with? Abram. Who had God said, I am going to bless you? Abram. Who did God come and say to them, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your ancestors, your followers. I'm going to make them more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the heavens. God came. He says this to Abram. Now on the flip side of that, who seems to be like tagging along in all this for a free ride? Lot. My nephew Lot. He's in the back. Lot's tagging along for the free ride, but guess what? Abram puts their relationship before his rights. 
Friends, I just want to ask you to prayerfully consider this morning, is there anywhere in your life right now that relationships are broken or things have stopped moving between you and God because somewhere along the way you started thinking, this is my right. We will only put our relationships before what we perceive to be our rights if we truly believe God is the great provider. That's the only time, that's the only circumstance. If we trust God has what I need, then we are able to put relationships before our rights. Why is this? Why are we wired like this? Why is that just the natural thing that I'm, ten, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put my rights before, before you? Well, that's what the world has taught us. That's what the world has taught us. In talking about this, Walter Brueggemann, theologian, in his commentary on Genesis, begins to try and help us by defining what is this thinking that we're taught by living in this world. And he says this, the common worldly economic view is a thing that we call scarcity. Scarcity. Now, here's the definition. I like definitions. They're helpful, okay? The definition of scarcity is the fundamental economic problem of having seemingly unlimited human wants in a world of limited human resources. In other words, scarcity states that society has an insufficient amount of stuff to keep up with the overwhelming amount of human wants. Now, that, that's kind of an academic definition. Maybe it will be helpful for you um, for a, a redneck definition because I've got one. Redneck is helpful sometimes. Just cut to the chase, right? The redneck definition is there ain't enough to go around y'all. Okay, that, that speaks to us. Like there's only five pieces of ham and there's eight of us. Bad stuff might happen. But you may be here this morning and, hey, Brian, I am not a redneck. I am civilized. Great. I've got something to help you as well. The most civilized, simplistic model example that we have of scarcity is this little game that we've all played called musical chairs. You remember musical chairs, don't you? Everybody walks around in the circle and the music's playing. And when the music stops, bam, I got to find a chair. But the thing that defines musical chairs, the thing that causes the game to even be able to be played is there's always one less chair than there are people. There's always one less chair. So that's scarcity. And here's the thing. If this is accepted, if, if we just accept that scarcity is the underlying foundation of man's economy, of the way we operate with one another, then we also have to accept that conflict, competition, and aggression are appropriate responses to this economy. Here's what I mean by that. If life really is just this big game of musical chairs then I'm completely justified at running over you to get to that chair that I want. It doesn't matter. I gotta, gotta get my chair. This is what's happening in verses seven and eight 
here in Genesis 13. This is what's beginning to happen among Lot and Abram's herdsmen. But again, as I said a moment ago, Abram has the wisdom to see what's going on. In fact, Abram, if you read it, seems to be following the way of Jesus before, long before Jesus ever even enters the picture. Let me explain what I mean. Turn to Luke 12. In Luke chapter 12, there are thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus. And in verse 13, some dude out in the crowd starts yelling at Jesus. He starts, starts yelling, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This guy, whoever he is, his brother is probably standing like right next to him, 10 feet from him. He literally wants Jesus to call out his brother. He's probably pointing at him. Tell my brother, give me what's mine. Jesus says to him, hey man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? You know what Jesus is saying? Hey, I don't know if you've realized this yet or not, but I really haven't come to play mediator between you and your brother over your family finances. I'm here for something a hair more important. And so Jesus says to everybody there, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what will I do? I have nowhere to store all my crops. What am I going to do? I have so much stuff that I don't even know where to put it all. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I love this part. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sounds like a great plan, right? Evidently not. Because God comes and says to him, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And these things that you've prepared, all this stuff that you've stored away, all this stuff that you've held on to, whose will it be now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the man comes wanting Jesus, hey, tell my brother to give me what's mine. Jesus turns from the outward issue, the symptom, toward the deeper root issue, which Jesus identifies as covetousness. That's a kind of a long, hairy word, covetousness. What is that? Well, the Old Testament, in fact, even in the Ten Commandments, tells us you should not covet. What does this mean? Again, let's go with definitions. To covet means to yearn, to possess, or have something. Like you hunger for it. You long for that thing. Like maybe you've been in your driveway like me before, and I'm trying to start my 15-year-old clunker lawnmower, and I'm watching my neighbor over there who I can almost promise you like claps his lawnmower on and then just kind of thinks what it's supposed to do, you know. 
I don't even have, what do you call that? Self-propelled. You, you want my lawnmower to go? You got to push it. It's a novel idea, right? So sometimes if I'm being honest, I'm pushing my lawnmower and I'm going, man, if I only had that lawnmower. Some of us, it's like, man, my iPhone 16, this thing is really good. It, it tells me when to eat, when to go to the restroom. It reminds me of where I am. But have you seen the 17? Oh, wow. And you know, here's the deal. It's not bad or wrong to want things. But what Jesus said is when those wants begin to control us, that's coveting. When we begin to be consumed by these wants. And in fact, what Jesus says is that this is the way of death covetousness is the way of death. The one who lays up treasure for himself, the one that just keeps getting, 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 getting is not rich toward God. Let's put it another way. The person who is overcome with the idea of scarcity, the person who is controlled by the idea of scarcity cannot live resting and knowing that God is the provider. I can't live like, hey man, there's only so much stuff out there and I got to get me some of that. So if I run over you, sorry, but hey, I got to get it. I can't live like that. And then five minutes later be like, Lord, thank you so much for supplying all my needs. It doesn't work that way. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to covetousness? It's relying on the good gifts and the character of our heavenly father. In regards to these good gifts, I remind you this morning, the apostle Paul says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches, not yours. Well, like how much riches does he have? A lot. The Psalms say he has a, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wow. What does that mean? I really don't know other than God will never run out of cows ever. It it means that God, he has so much that we can't even conceive of what he has. See, the world's economy is one of scarcity, but we have a heavenly father whose economy is one of plenty. God has plenty. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus keeps going in verse 22. He says to the disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And Jesus goes on and he says, consider the ravens. Look at the birds. They don't have jobs, but God feeds them. Consider the flowers out in the field. They don't toil or spin, but they are robed more beautifully than King Solomon ever was. Jesus says, so in verse 28, if if God clothes the grass which is there today and tomorrow it's going to be mowed down. Then won't he take care of you? Won't he clothe you? Oh, you have a little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Don't worry about these things. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. 
Jesus says that we can become consumed with covetousness and anxiety and worry and a lack of faith. Or we can seek, seek after our heavenly father, seek his kingdom and rest in knowing that he not only has plenty, but that he longs to give us every good gift. Let's put this as simply as we possibly can. Um, it's great having a lot of our kids in here with us this morning. Kids, sometimes parents need help because we complicate things. So let's just put it this way. God has more than enough for all of us. Anybody want to say amen? Good. Let's say that together, okay? God has more than enough for all of us. Needs to be much more enthusiastic than that. So let's give it one more go. Here we go. God has more than enough for all of us. And you know what? He has that much and then some. You cannot wrap your head around it. And see, Abram chose to believe this. Abram chose to believe this and Abram chose to live like this and Abram was rich toward God. But what about Lot? What about Lot? Let's travel back to Genesis 13. And remember, Abram has said to his nephew, hey, this like division and stuff can't go on between us. Let's separate. If you want what's on the left, I'll take what's on the right. If you want what's on the right, I'll take what's on the left. But hey, humble nephew, you choose. Well, let's see what he does. Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Friends, if Abram through faith trusted God, Lot in his flesh trusted his own eyes. Lot trusted what he saw. Lot began buying into the idea of scarcity. Lot not only grabbed what he perceived to be the very best for himself, he grabbed it all. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I read something like this, and there's a little part of me that wants to maybe condemn and judge Lot a little. Until I come to the conclusion that I very often am tempted to do the same. Let me give you an example. For most of my adult life, without question, my favorite thing to put in my mouth and eat was my own homemade chocolate chip cookies. Okay? If I'm in the kitchen making cookies, you can stand back and watch. Just be patient. Eventually, we will feast together. I love those still warm cookies with a frozen tankard of ice cold milk. Glory, hallelujah. (laughs) But over the last few years, my cookies have been dethroned. Can you believe it? 
my friend Connie, Connie was here earlier. Connie makes cakes. And she makes lots of cakes. But see, there's, there's one cake that sits on a throne far above all of them. And that is Connie's famous carrot cake. And see, some of you here this morning, you're even out there going, carrot cake? That doesn't even make sense in the same sentence. You need to be healed. And uh, <laughs> I hope someday you will be. But see, you may look at our family and think, the Mayfields, that's such a nice, sweet family. And, and we are. Um, unless, unless you come over and we have a carrot cake. And maybe I shouldn't speak for the other three individuals that live in the home. I'll just speak for myself. But I turn into some sort of ninja. Because, like, I'm watching how big the piece is you take. I'm making sure you didn't take icing off that piece unless you're taking that piece. I mean, there's rules to cakes. And I'm also thinking about how am I going to maneuver? I, I really want that piece. It, some, some ignoramus cut weird. So if I get that piece, it's like there's extra. We took one of these to my in-laws for my father-in-law one time, all the way to Charleston in this big, you know, plastic protective case. And my father-in-law and I did the ninja game. I mean, it was like we were, we were battling to see who was going to maneuver it. If you want to see what a mindless band of hooligans looks like, buying into the idea of scarcity, come over to our house when we have the carrot cake. It's like we all of a sudden started believing there will never be another carrot cake in human history. I must get the biggest piece. I must get the best piece. And now here's where it really comes down. And I've got to get the last piece. (laughs) Like something in us is convinced that the last one, it has to be the best. Because what if this is the last piece of cake anyone ever eats? I need to eat it. This is what happened to Lot. Something affected Lot's brain. I don't know if you even saw what happened because we read through it so fast. But if you look in verse 11, it says, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. I got to go there in January. And I will tell you, it still to this day is one of the most lush, growing breathtaking things you will ever see. Like, how does this place stay like this? And Lot says, uh, yeah, thanks, kind uncle. I'll take all of it. But did you see what else Lot did? Lot took it and then he kept going east. I'll take it and I'll take everything east of it. What was east of the Jordan Valley? This little city called Sodom. And what Lot did was Lot chose to settle right smack in the epicenter of sin and wickedness. And remember, Lot didn't just take himself there with like his little five by 10 U-Haul. He took everyone. He took his wife. He took his family. He took his servants. He took his herdsmen. And he took them all right into the heart of sin. But Lot wasn't really thinking about himself at this moment, was he? Because if you go back again and look at Genesis 13, it said that Lot lifted up his eyes and then he did what? Lot chose for who? Himself. Lot chose for himself. 
John Calvin in his commentary on Genesis says this, let us learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted, that we must rather be on guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unaware with many evils just as Lot. When he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. A lot of times in life, we like try to get as close to the fire as we can without falling in. You realize when you do that, you're still going to get burned. We can't get as close to sin as we can. When we do that, when we try and get as close to sin as I can with, "Ah, I'm not going to fall into that, rather than saying, God, how can I get as far away from this as possible? When we do that, Rather than running the other way, we always wind up being sucked into the devastation. We always wind up falling into it. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see more of the results of this in Lot's life. But this morning, as we close out, I want to just go back and focus our attention for a couple minutes on Abram. Remember, God made a covenant with Abram. And now he comes back to him and he renews this covenant with him. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward. Look east and west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I want you to know Um, It's not a coincidence that God waited until Lot was gone to come back to Abram because God did not want to give this to Lot. He wanted to give it to Abram. And he says to him, look in any direction, I'm gonna give it to you. Well, now, wait a minute. Didn't Abram just give Lot all of that stuff to the east? He did, but eventually God's gonna take it back from him and give it to Abram. And then God goes on and reminds Abram that your offspring will be as many as the dust of the earth. Try and figure that out for a minute. Verse 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land. I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So as all of this unfolds, What we know is that in the end, the man led by his own eyes, the man who was led by his own flesh, the man who was driven by his own self-centeredness took his whole family and settled down right in the valley of sin. But the man led by faith the man who desired nothing more than to walk in obedience to God, the man who trusted God to provide and to protect, he now comes and he rests in the shade of God's provision and his protection. And as a result of this, what does he do again? He builds an altar to the Lord and worships him. Further affirming something that we talked about last week, what Abram did, first, Abram followed and obeyed God. And as a result, he worshiped God. I want to ask you this morning, would you pray, Lord, 
help me put my relationships before these things I perceive to be my rights. Would you pray that? It's tough. There are times in our lives when it's very hard. The only way that we will do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray and ask God, Lord, help me to not be deceived into the world's economy of scarcity, but Lord, help me to rest in the knowledge that you are my heavenly father and that you are a God of plenty, that you'll take care of my needs. Abram did. That's what Abram believed and that's how Abram lived and God blessed him. And Jesus calls us to do the same. Jesus said, don't seek after these things. Don't be consumed by what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? All the nations of the world seek after these things. The Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need. Instead, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your heavenly father longs to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there is no thief to steal, where there is no moth to destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you in this moment, as King David did, Lord, we ask you to search our hearts. And Father, we pray that if there's anything of this world that we're trying to grasp hold of, if there's anything of this world that right now is is possessing us, Lord, that you would bring us to that place of freedom, of just walking in complete dependence and faith and obedience to you. Lord, we pray that where our lives may be infected right now or being seduced by selfishness or self-centeredness, Lord, we pray that you would lead us into selflessness. In just a moment, as part of our response, we have the opportunity to take communion. I want to encourage you, whether you you come alone or you come with a friend or with your family, 
that you take that bread and you take that cup and you take a moment to remember that Jesus Christ, his body was broken, his life was taken, his blood was shed. He laid it down for you and for me. Not so that we could just go to heaven later, but that we might be able to walk in victory over sin and death now. Lord, would you so powerfully remind us this morning, not only of what you did for us, but why you did it. For the glory of the Father in and through our lives. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never put your faith in Christ. First of all, we want you to know we've been praying for you that the Lord would have been, the Lord is drawing your heart. And you may even sense right now, man, something is stirring within me. The Spirit of God is, is drawing you. In just a moment, during this time of response, some of our pastors, elders, leaders are going to be in the back. They would love to talk with you, share with you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, these moments are yours. We worship you and praise you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Be exalted. Let's stand together and worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.